Here's an interesting fact for you on this Easter Sunday morning. A few months ago, back in the fall of 2019, uh, the LifeWay Research Group conducted a survey of churches across the United States. And they were asking in this survey questions about how churches were transitioning to an online ministry presence. Specifically, they were asking the question, do you stream your services online every Sunday? And seven months ago, that survey revealed that only 22% of the churches in America were doing so. Think about that. Only 22% of churches were live online on Sunday morning only seven months ago. Now, of course, it's a different world. And with the COVID-19 mitigation efforts, all of these uh, state and county rules that have been imposed, uh, limiting gatherings to no more than 10 or 20 or 50 people, churches all across America have been scrambling to put their Sunday morning services online. So that today, well over half of the churches in the United States have a presence online. They are streaming a sermon and some music. The Word of God is going forth from over half of America's churches online this morning. Today, there are more churches who are putting live ministry content on the internet than on any Sunday ever before. And so it stands to reason when you think about that, that today, before you and I go to bed tonight, there will be more people who will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ today than on any given day, any single day in all of human history. Now I want to say that again. It is an incredible fact that before you go to bed tonight, on this day, more people across the world will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ than on any single day in all of human history. And this proclamation, this global proclamation of the gospel of Jesus is happening in a time of absolute worldwide distress and crisis. And this is what the church gets to do, isn't it? That in a season of global distress, of worldwide crisis, the church has the opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And this has always been the privilege and the duty of the local church. It has for the last 2,000 years been what the church does to step into the brokenness of our world, to step into the chaos and the confusion and the despair of a world covered in darkness and to project the light of the gospel into that darkness. It is our duty and our privilege. It's rather like the Apostle Paul. Many of you will be familiar with the story of the Apostle Paul that's recorded in Acts chapter 27 when he is on a boat, on a ship, 
uh, sailing from Caesarea in the land of Israel to Rome, Italy. He's actually a prisoner on that ship, uh, having been arrested for preaching the gospel. And he's on the boat and they're traveling through the Mediterranean. And Acts 27 records how that as they're sailing through the Mediterranean, they encounter a storm which lasts day after day after day. And as they're approaching the island of Malta in the widest part of the Mediterranean Sea, when land is further away to the east and the west than at any other point, and where the sea is its deepest, in that place about three miles deep, The storm is tossing that ship that Paul is on back and forth. They've done everything they can to stay afloat. They're throwing tackle overboard. They've thrown their cargo overboard. They're they're battening down the hatches and, and they're hoisting the sails and they're doing all they can to stay afloat. And Acts 27 says they reach a point where all hope is lost that they were gonna survive. And in that moment, Acts 27, 25, Paul stands on the deck of that battered ship. He stands on the deck, maybe holding on to a mast line as the winds are howling and the, and the boat is rocking and the sailors are, are cowering and afraid and sure they're going to die. And Paul shouts into the wind and the noise and the fear, Sirs, be of good cheer. For I believe God. Loved ones, this is what we get to do. This is the privilege that God has given us. To shout into the chaos. To shout into the despair. We have a word from God. And that word is true. And today that word is, he is not here. He has risen. This is the message of the church in the darkness and the day that we are living in. And you talk about darkness. You talk about confusion. You want to talk about despair. Can you imagine that long Passover weekend 2,000 years ago? That weekend that Jesus Christ had been arrested. He had been condemned. He had been beaten mercilessly. And finally, he had been crucified and he had died. And for every one of his disciples and his followers, all of their hopes and all of their expectations and all of their messianic dreams had died with him on that cross. As they had watched from a distance, Jesus dying on the cross, everything that they had dreamt of and hoped in him, was gone. And over the course of that Sabbath weekend, they huddled and they cowered. Peter and John and James and Andrew and the others, they all huddled in houses and they were certain that when the Sabbath ended, the sun would rise with a knock on their door and the authorities would be there to arrest them. And they, as followers of Jesus, they were certain they would die as well. And then Sunday morning came. The Sabbath passed, the sun rose, and the confusion that came along with that sunrise was even greater than it had been before. If you were tuned in this morning to our sunrise service, I talked a bit about that confusion of that 
early Sunday morning. A group of at least five women who had made their way down to the tomb. And then that party split up and people were going in different directions and angels were appearing and speaking and Christ himself even appeared and Peter and John ran to the tomb and then back to the house and it was all of this back and forth and there were these stories and allegedly Christ had risen but where was his body if it wasn't in the tomb and was he really alive and the Emmaus Road disciples saying well we heard but we thought and we hoped and there was all sorts of confusion and all day long people came and went and told their version of what they thought had happened until finally in John chapter number 20 late on Sunday afternoon somebody shows up who dispels all of the confusion and answers all of the questions and that somebody as you know is Jesus do you have your Bibles open to John chapter 20 will you follow along as I read John chapter 20 beginning in verse number 19 It's late in the day on Sunday afternoon. Verse 19 says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. But Thomas, verse 24 says, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Now the other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see his hands, uh, in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of those nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be unto you. Then he turns to Thomas. Thomas, reach here your finger. Behold my hands, and reach here your hand, and thrust it into my side. Be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are they that have not seen and have yet believed. If you have your pen, your note taker, underline that statement of Jesus. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe on the name or believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you might have life through his name. Now just for a bit of context, and I know that you know this already, but just for the context, I want you to turn back one page to John chapter number 19. 
Let me just remind you of what had happened just prior to this encounter in chapter 20. Look at it. John chapter 19 and verse 30. We're back at Calvary now. Jesus is on the cross. Verse 30 says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. It means he, he yielded up his spirit. I wrote in the margin of my Bible, Jesus died. So in John chapter 19, verse 30, without question, Jesus is dead. And if you'll move on down in chapter 19 to verse number 38, 39, verse 40, you'll see where Jesus is buried. Look at verse 40. Then they took the body of Jesus and they wound it in linen clothes with spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden, there was a new sepulcher where never a man had been laid. There they laid the body of Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. So I want you just for context to see in chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus is dead. Chapter 19, verse 40, 41, Jesus is buried, dead and buried. And then if you'll go back to chapter number 20, verse 19 says that Jesus is standing in the midst of his disciples. In verse number 21, it says that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Again, in verse 26 and 29, the second occasion, Jesus is standing in the midst of his disciples and he is speaking to his disciples. Again, put all of that together. Chapter 19, verse 30, he dies. Verse 40, he's buried. In the next chapter, he's standing with them and he's speaking. Now, loved ones, this is the message of the church of Jesus Christ. We proclaim unequivocally, we uh, proclaim without hesitation that Jesus was dead, he was buried and yet he is very much alive. In fact, this is what Jesus proclaimed of himself in the book of Revelation. You might remember when he appears to John in Revelation chapter 1. And he says, I am he that was dead and I'm alive. And behold, I am alive forevermore. It is the message of Christianity. It is the message of Easter. It is the good news of the gospel. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. But what does that mean for us in practical ways? How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ speak to my life today? How does it transform my eternity? Well, the Bible is clear to tell us this in John chapter number 20. I want you to write a couple of things down. John chapter 20 uh, tells us at least two things. I'm sure there are more, but at least two things that this passage reveals to us. Things that are guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. Write the first one down. It is that, that in the resurrection of Jesus, he promises peace to the restless. Peace to the restless. Now, I've already noted that these disciples, these followers of Jesus, both those original uh, 11 of the 12, Judas, of course, has now betrayed Christ and, and is gone, but the 11 remaining, those and then all of the uh, other followers of Jesus who had come from Galilee, the women and, and those others, they are restless, to say the least. They're afraid, they're confused, they're disappointed. As I mentioned, uh, the events of the day have only added to their confusion. 
Uh, they've only added to, to their wondering about what has really happened with this uh, Lord that they've had all of their trust in. The reports of the empty tomb and some believing he had risen and others doubting had added to their conversation. And in John chapter 20, late in that day, as people have been coming and going, now the doors are closed, they're locked up for fear. And you can imagine, can't you, what this, what this room must have been like. You've got all of this huddled group of people. And there are quiet conversations happening, maybe two or three standing on that side of the room. And, and they're, they're talking about the things that uh, they've seen or that they've heard or that someone else has, has seen and heard. And, and then you've got uh, someone standing by the door. They've got the door locked and they keep looking, maybe peering out uh, through the blinds and making sure no soldiers are coming up the street to arrest them. And, Perhaps per, uh, every now and then you'd hear a, a stifled sob and someone weeping over all of the loss and the fear. And suddenly, in the midst of that, almost as if no one even notices that he's there, the Bible says in verse number 19 that as they're assembled, Jesus is just in the midst. Do you see it in verse 19? Jesus came and stood in the midst among them. Now, he didn't come through the door. The door is locked. There was no knock at the door. Jesus say, hey, let me in. That didn't happen. They're huddled in this locked room, and all of a sudden, Jesus is there. And he begins to speak, and suddenly, from all of their quiet and huddled conversations, they hear his voice, and, and they look, and there he is. And the Bible says in verse 19, he greets them with these words, peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. Now, you should know that this greeting, this Jewish greeting, would be the most customary and common way that they would greet one another. In Hebrew, it's pronounced shalom alechem. And it simply is the customary way of saying, peace be unto you. It would be just like me saying to you, how are you? Good to see you. It's just a normal greeting. Imagine this, he who had been dead, chapter 19, verse 30, he who was buried, chapter 19, verse 40, now in this huddled room filled with fear as people are having quiet conversations, in the middle of that room, suddenly, here's Jesus in the most nonchalant, most customary way, shalom, shalom alechem, peace be unto you. Hey guys, now the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 24, in fact, I want to turn and read it to you. In Luke chapter number 24, that when they heard his voice saying, Shalom Aleichem, they turned, they saw him, he who had been crucified and buried. They see him standing in their midst and they are terrified. And you would be too, right? Listen to what the Bible tells us in Luke chapter number 24. That they cry out. He says in verse 36, peace be unto you. Verse 37 says, they were terrified. They cried out, supposing they had seen a spirit or a ghost. They thought that Christ had appeared to them as a ghost. And he says, according to Luke's gospel, why are you afraid? Why are you thinking these things? Behold my hands and my feet. He shows them his hands and his uh, feet and his side. And he says, do you see that it's me? 
A spirit or a ghost doesn't have a body like I have. And then Luke tells us, I love this, Luke tells us that, that to prove that he's there bodily, he says to them, verse 41, I'm in Luke 24, 41, have you any meat? Do you have anything to eat? So he who was dead and buried now stands in the midst of them. Shalom Aleichem, good to see you. Um, do you have anything to eat? Now is Jesus eating because he's hungry? I don't think so. I think he's eating because he wants to demonstrate that he has risen physically. He's risen bodily. Have you any meat? And they gave him a piece of fish, a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb. And he ate that meal with them. Now, back in John chapter number 20, the Bible says that once they saw his hands, they saw his feet, they saw the wound in his side, he's speaking to them just like I'm speaking to you, and they even saw him have food with them, share a meal with them. Then the Bible says, then they were glad. Look at what John chapter number 20 tells us they were glad when they saw his hands, uh, saw, saw his body fully and physically resurrected. They found this happiness, this joy, verse 20 says, because Jesus was surely risen. And in fact, the word glad, when verse 20 says that they were glad, it means that they rejoiced and they greeted him with rejoicing. Now, I don't know exactly what that looked like, but I'm confident that it included hugs and, uh, and slaps on the back and hugging one another and hugging him and high-fiving because they knew now for certain, no more confusion, they knew for certain that Jesus Christ was alive. Now, now what does this promise bring to our lives? What does this assurance that Jesus is alive, that the disciples experienced, what does this encounter teach us? Well, I think a couple of important things. One is, this encounter is instructive because it teaches us that Christ brings us peace in seasons of great loss. Christ brings us peace. If you think about it, John chapter 20 begins with nothing but loss. And it ends with a, with a meal together. It begins with brokenness, but it ends with them breaking bread. This, this passage begins with fear and, and, and uh, confusion. And it ends with laughter and with peace. And what Christ brings to those of us who are enduring loss is a sense of his peace. Now let me just say, I know that all of us to some degree, and, and some much more than others, but to some degree or another, during this coronavirus crisis, all of us have suffered some sense of loss. Maybe it's simply the loss of the freedom to move about and be with family and friends, but we've lost that sense of fellowship and togetherness. I know that the empty chairs behind me are evidence of, they are a, a symbol that we have lost something temporarily. All of us have suffered some measure of loss. Some of you have suffered the loss of your jobs. And uh, as a result of that, perhaps the loss of your financial security. Maybe all of us, to a degree or another, have suffered the loss of our sense of well-being. 
But here's what I want you to know, that the fact that Jesus Christ is alive, he who had died and was buried now stands among us and says, Shalom Aleichem. He brings us his peace. It is the peace that invades our loss. In fact, in John chapter number 16, let me just turn and read it. Jesus gave a word of encouragement to his disciples. John 16, 33. He says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so Jesus promises that when we suffer loss, as we're suffering in these days, that he brings us his peace. Now there's a second thing that this passage instructs us in. And it is that Jesus' resurrection restores to us lost relationships. Because he has risen, we can have the restoration of lost relationships. Now this is true in life and in death. Certainly the risen Lord can bring a resurrection to broken relationships in this life. But But what I particularly have in mind here because of the obvious content of this text is that the resurrection of Jesus promises to restore lost relationships, those relationships that are lost when someone that we love passes away. You know, death really is the great divider. It really is. It is that separator. When a loved one dies... We can go with them to the very, very end. We can, we can travel with them through a, through a sickness or an illness or, a, or an accident. We can, we can walk with them through a hospital stay. We can, we can go even after they've passed all the way to the grave. But there is a point, there's a moment that the living must go no further. And the dead have gone on. And it is that that divider that separates the living from the dead. And in this text, death had drawn a line between Christ and his disciples. Death had separated him from his disciples. But the good news of John 20 is that the resurrection of Jesus erased the line of separation. When he died, he was laid in a tomb and a stone at the door, gone from their sight, as far as they knew, never to be seen again. And they were huddled in a house, separate from him and afraid. But the resurrection brought them back together again. And so we have, because of his resurrection, that exact same hope when we say goodbye to those that we love who have gone on to heaven. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 that because of the resurrection of Jesus, the grave has no victory and that death has lost its sting. And so while we grieve in the midst of the loss of someone that we love, we grieve with hope. In fact, Paul said that very thing, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul speaks to us about grieving with hope. Let me read it to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13. Paul writes, but I would not have you to be ignorant or unlearned, brethren, concerning them which are asleep or those who have died, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Now imagine this, the peace and hope that came to these disciples with the knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus. Before he came into that room and said, Shalom Aleichem, they had no peace, no hope. 
But the moment the resurrected Christ stood before them, had fish and honeycomb with them, they saw his hands, his feet, and his side. Suddenly they knew hope and peace extended beyond the grave. So Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, when we bury a loved one, we grieve, certainly, but we don't grieve without hope. We grieve in hope. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Let me stop right there. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? That Jesus died? John 19, 30, he died. John 19, 40, he was buried. John 20, he was risen from the dead. Do you believe it? If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. Here's what will happen. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be called up with them. That is our, our deceased loved ones. We shall be called up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. You see, here's what the resurrection of Jesus guarantees us. That though we have lost relationships to death, in the resurrection of Jesus we can know that those uh, relationships will be restored. If that loved one knew Jesus and we know Jesus, we will be together in Jesus for all eternity. The resurrection of Jesus is our reminder that when we bury a loved one, we don't say goodbye. We say goodnight. I'll see you in the morning because the resurrection guarantees the restoration of lost relationships. Now there's one other thing back in John chapter 20. It is that the resurrection of Jesus validates the ministry of the church. It really does. Notice what Jesus says. He says that our ministry is validated by his resurrection. By the way, before we read these verses in chapter 20, Paul says this same thing. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us in verse 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain. I want you to know this. If Christ is not risen, we have no ministry. If Christ is not risen, our faith is foolish. If Christ is not risen, we are liars, but Christ has risen. And therefore, we have a great commandment and a great commission ministry. And Jesus validates that here in this room with these disciples. Listen to what he says beginning in verse number 21. Then Jesus said to them, Shalom Aleichem, peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. There's the commission. Do you see it? Jesus says to his church, I am sending you. The resurrected Jesus says, I am sending you on a mission. You have an evangelistic mission. Your mission relates to the good news of Christ's resurrection. As the Father hath sent me, even so I send you. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Now what you have in verse 22 is a bit of a precursor to the great arrival of the Holy Spirit which will occur uh, on the day of Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter number 2. But he is saying to them, you will go on this mission in the power 
of the Holy Spirit. Christ is risen. He sends his spirit to empower us to send us on a mission. What is the mission? Verse 23. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained uh, as unto them as well. Now what's Jesus saying? He's saying that the church has been entrusted with the message of the forgiveness of sin. It is the church, I want you to hear me carefully, it is the church of Jesus Christ that declares the forgiveness of sin. In the power of the Holy Spirit and under the authority of Jesus, I can declare to you that your sins can be forgiven. Or I can just as assuredly say to you, your sins will not be forgiven. Now, Jesus is not saying that I or you or these disciples have the power of forgiveness. In fact, to say such would contradict other places where Jesus says no one can forgive sins but God. We don't have the power to forgive sins. We have the message. We have the proclamation, the declaration of how sins are forgiven or whether they are retained. And that is whether or not someone believes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and trusts in Christ as their Savior. And so the point is that Christ has risen and he validates the ministry of the church. Now here's the, here are the things promised to us in his peace. That he promises peace when we're in seasons of loss. I hope you're experiencing it. I know that I am. He promises us the restoration of broken relationships. I know I'll see my loved ones who have gone on before. I know you will too if you know Jesus. And thirdly, he guarantees us a ministry until he returns. Now there's one other thing that this passage tells us that I want you to pay particular attention to. It's guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. And it's this, it is that the resurrection guarantees faith to the skeptics. It guarantees faith to the skeptics. Now, listen, I don't mean to imply that skepticism is always a bad thing. In fact, skepticism can be a good thing. It can be a healthy thing. Uh, we ought to ask good questions. We ought to make sure we understand what is true. Thomas, in the gospel texts, as many of you know, was known as Thomas the, do you know it? Thomas the Doubter, or Doubting Thomas. Uh, Thomas was, by nature, a skeptic. Um, he was, by nature, questioning or doubtful. Some might even say Thomas was a glass-half-empty kind of guy, as opposed to a glass-half-full kind of guy. But surely he was a skeptic. Uh, you'll find this in a couple of different examples in uh, Thomas's interactions with the disciples uh, throughout the Gospels. In fact, John chapter number 11, Jesus is talking about going to Jerusalem where uh, he knows he's going to be arrested and crucified. And Thomas's response is, well, if he's going, let us go that we can die with him. Now, again, it's a, it's a bit of a sad sack view. Well, let's go die with him. But to his credit, it's a very devoted view. If Jesus is going to die, then let's go and die with him. Uh, there's another place where the Bible tells us in John chapter 14 on the, la the night of the Last Supper that uh, Jesus is saying, I'm going away, but where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. And it's Thomas that pipes up and says, we don't know the way, and we don't know where you're going, and we don't know how to go there. And so this is Thomas's nature. Uh, he's a skeptic by nature, and you see that skepticism in John chapter number 
20. Look at verse 24. The Bible says, But Thomas, who's one of the twelve, called Didymus, which, by the way, just means he's a twin. He has a twin, twin uh, brother. Uh, Thomas, which is called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. And so when he comes back after Jesus has, has gone, of course, the other disciples, verse 25, said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, I don't believe it. Now, by the way, before you are too hard on Thomas for not believing this, remember when Mary Magdalene showed up to tell them that she had seen the risen Lord. They, they didn't believe her. And when some of the other women showed up to tell some of the other disciples they had seen him, they didn't believe her. On the road to Emmaus, when the two disciples are speaking to Jesus, they said some of the women told us that they thought they had seen, her, seen him risen from the dead. They didn't believe them. So, so don't be too hard on Thomas. He hears these disciples say, we've seen the Lord. He says, I don't believe it. I won't believe it unless I can see his hands and his feet and see the wound in his side. He refuses to believe them. And this goes on for a week. They keep telling him for a week, Thomas, it's real. Thomas, it's true. Thomas, we've seen him. Thomas, he's alive. And he will not believe it. Now, maybe I'm talking to some Thomases today. Maybe I'm talking to some of you who have heard the story of the resurrection. You've had friends and family members and loved ones who have said to you about the reality of Jesus, that he is the risen Savior, and you have yet to believe it. I want you to know from this passage that Jesus gives faith to skeptics. All of us to some degree are skeptics. Our, our faith develops sometimes more slowly than others. But our faith must grow, and Jesus gives faith to skeptics. In fact, he was up to the challenge. Thomas said in verse 25, unless I, unless I see him, unless I can touch him, I'll never believe it. And so Jesus says, well, if, if that's what you need, okay. So the Bible tells us, verse number 26, they're together again. This time Thomas is with them. They're all huddled up talking just like previously. Jesus shows up, doesn't come through the door. He's just suddenly in the room with them, and he says, shalom aleichem. Peace be unto you, verse number 26. And then he turns to Thomas. Imagine what that moment must have been like. He turns to Thomas. I, I almost, I don't know this for sure, but I almost think all the other disciples kind of stepped back and said, see, told you. He turns to Thomas. He says, Thomas, you need to see my wounds. Here, take your hand. Touch the wounds in my hand. Here, see the wound in my side. Jesus is up to the skepticism of the skeptics. He's, he's good to, he's equal to the challenges of the skeptics. And so he says, Thomas, here, you can see so that you can believe. And Thomas replies, my Lord and my God, as he falls to his knees. And Jesus challenges Thomas in this moment. And I think Jesus would challenge some of you this morning. He says to Thomas in verse 27 at the end of the verse, Stop being faithless and believe. Can I be the voice of Jesus to you? Stop being faithless and just believe. Jesus is equal to your skepticism. So stop disbelieving and believe. Well, Thomas did. 
My Lord and my God, he cried out, falling to his knees. And Jesus said something very interesting to him in verse number 29. He said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are they that have not seen, and yet they have believed. I asked you to underline that as we were reading through the text a moment ago. You've never seen Jesus. I've never seen Jesus. But I believe And I want you to know that we have the blessing of his peace and the blessing of his restoration and the blessing of his joy and the blessing of his hope for eternity. We have these blessings because having not seen him, we have believed in him. And I wonder if you would be willing to believe today. If you would hear the challenge of verse number 27, that you would hear Jesus say, stop being faithless. And believe. And you may say, well, Pastor, what would that look like for me to believe in Jesus? What would that mean? Well, it's instructive to see how Thomas believed. When he says in verse 28, falling to his knees, he says, My Lord and my God, believing in the death, chapter 19, verse 30, in the burial, chapter 19, verse 40, in the resurrection as uh, we see the risen Christ in John chapter 20, believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus means confessing he is, as Thomas said, my God. He is my God. That means that I believe in the person of Jesus. I don't believe that he was just a historical figure, a good man, a rabbi, a teacher. I believe he is my God. God in the flesh, God incarnate, God who came. to to bear our sins as he walked in this world. He is my God. And then Thomas said, he is my Lord. The word Lord means master. It means that to believe means that I'm confessing Jesus as my Lord, that I am surrendering my life to him with all of my sin and all of my brokenness and all of my failings. I am surrendering all of that to Jesus and trusting in his death and resurrection as my only hope for salvation. Believing, to accept the challenge of Jesus, to stop being faithless and to believe, is to say to him, you are God and you are my Lord and I surrender to you. Now the Bible promises that if we will do that, the blessing that we will receive will come through that name, that our confidence in that name of Jesus. Look at verse number 30. It says, In many other signs Jesus truly did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, these things are written, that you might believe on the name of Jesus Christ. And you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. The word of God has been written. The gospel accounts have been recorded so that you might believe in Jesus Christ. You believe that Jesus is the Savior and that, verse 31 goes on to say, and that believing you might have life through his name. And so I want to challenge you today to stop being faithless and to believe. To believe that Jesus died for you. To believe that Jesus was buried because he was truly dead and to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. As Matthew 28 tells us, he is not here, he is risen As John chapter 20 tells us, he said, see my hands, see my feet, see my side, give me something to eat. I have risen bodily from the grave. And that believing that he died for my sins, he was risen from the grave, that Jesus Christ is my Savior. 
And John chapter 20, verse 31 says, believing that, you will have eternal life. And I want to invite you into that. Right there where you are in your home, I want to invite you to believe in Jesus. And so would you bow your head with me? Would you just stop being faithless? And would you believe?